It's Nikki Strong, and this is VOA1, The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Coming up on the program, Jill Robbins has a story on an investigation into the poisoning of schoolgirls in Iran. Faith Perlow answers a question from a listener, and we listen to part four of The Blue Hotel by Stephen Crane. But first... Iran's president recently ordered an investigation into a series of sicknesses from poisonous air at a number of girls' schools in the country. Some officials suspect the incidents are attacks targeting women's education. Hundreds of girls at about 30 schools have been sickened since November, with some needing hospital care. Children have reported head pain, fast heartbeats, feeling tired or weakened. Some described sensing a smell of the fruit tangerine, chlorine, and chemicals used in cleaning. On Wednesday, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi told a cabinet meeting that the Interior Ministry should investigate the incidents. He said, the country's health and intelligence ministries should help in the investigation. It was the first time Raisi had spoken publicly about the sicknesses. A day earlier, a top security official had dismissed the reports of possible poisonings. The Interior Ministry official, Majid Miramadi, called the reports psychological warring by enemies in media and elsewhere. Their goal was to force schools to close, he said. The first cases of sickness happened late last year in Qom, a city some 125 kilometers southwest of Iran's capital, Tehran. The city is known for its conservative religious history. Students at Qom's Nur Yazdanshar Conservatory got sick in November. They recovered before becoming sick again the next month. Then other cases at other girls' schools followed. At first, officials did not connect the cases at different schools. Some questioned if the natural gas systems that heated schools was to blame. But the sicknesses were happening only at schools for females. Since then, officials say at least one boys' school has been targeted as well. Ali Reza Monadi is a national parliament member who sits on its education committee. He described the poisonings as intentional. We have to try to find roots of the incidents, he told Iran's state media agency, IRNA. Sharg a reformist news website based in Tehran, reported that many parents have withdrawn their students from school. 
On Tuesday, another suspected attack was reported at a girls' school in Pardis, on the eastern outskirts of Tehran. The poisonings come as getting confirmable information out of Iran remains difficult. The government is strongly punishing any public show of dissent following months of huge civil rights demonstrations in the country. Security forces have arrested at least 95 press workers since protests broke out in September of last year, reports the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists. Human rights activists in Iran say at least 530 people have been killed in the increased security measures. They say Iranian security forces have arrested about 19,700 people as well. Attacks on women have happened in the past in Iran, most recently with a wave of acid attacks in 2014 around Isfahan. At the same time, at the time, the attacks were believed to have been carried out by religious extremists targeting women for the clothing they wore. But even in the disorder surrounding the Islamic Revolution, no one was known to target schoolgirls for attending classes. Hadi Khaimi is the executive director of the New York-based Center for Human Rights in Iran. There's a very fundamentalist thinking surfacing in society, Hayami said. We have no idea how widespread this group is, but the fact they have been able to carry it out with such impunity is so troubling. I'm Jill Robbins. Hello! This week on Ask a Teacher, we will answer a question about reading skills like finding definitions and transitions. Greetings from Ecuador. Could you please provide me any information and guidance to improve my reading skills and share them with my English students? Thank you in advance for your help and support, Angel. Thanks for writing to us, Angel. When we read, we are reading someone's piece of writing. So we can bring writing skills to the activity of reading. Finding transitions and definitions can help us with our reading. Transitions are words and phrases that connect ideas. Transitions help with organizing thoughts in writing. They help develop ideas smoothly. Identifying transitions while reading can help us better understand what we are reading. Transitions can be found within paragraphs, between paragraphs, 
and between longer divisions of texts. There are several kinds of transitions. Time order transitions are words like first, next, second, finally, and lastly. They establish the order of events or ideas. There are also transitions that show a relationship between ideas. For example, we can show contrast between ideas by using however or nonetheless. We can show results by using the phrases as a result or consequently. Here is an example paragraph from a recent story called Five Ways That the Ukraine War Has Changed the World. What transitions are used? Before the war, much of the grain and vegetable oil sent to the Middle East and Africa came from Ukraine and Russia. Now countries are thinking about ways to provide their own food and energy. Two time order transitions, before and now, are used to show the time relationship between events that happened. Spotting the transitions and knowing what they mean can be helpful when reading. We can also find definitions within the text to help us better understand unfamiliar words. There are a few ways to do this. We can find verb phrases like is, are, is defined as, is called, means, or is a type of. Noticing these phrases within the story can help us learn new vocabulary. Here is an example from the article, Study Better Instruments Needed to Discover Life on Mars. Such testing is carried out in areas where bodies of water once existed. This is because those areas, called deltas, contain higher levels of ancient microbes to study. The Redstone area was a river delta about 100 million years ago. We can see from this example that called is used. The term delta is in an earlier paragraph, too. A delta is a kind of body of water, a place where a river meets the sea. We even have an example with the red stone area as a river delta. Another way to show definitions is through punctuation, like dashes or commas. Here is an example from our American president's stories. George Washington Reluctant this example uses two ways of showing a new word. He established a group of advisors, called the cabinet, as well as the nation's official money. Here we see that the writer uses dashes and called 
to give an informal definition of the group of advisors. And we can find definitions by reading further into the text. Here is an example from another recent story called Imperfect Models in Italy Redefine Beauty. Sonia Sparta is one of the models. The 28-year-old from Sicily has a condition called hyperpigmentation, or unusual skin coloring. It results in dark spots on her face and body. The word that is defined is hyperpigmentation. The definition is found right after the conjunction, or, which shows the definition. But if you read further into the next sentence, you can find out more about Sonia's condition. The writer uses the verb results to show the relationship between the condition of hyperpigmentation and its results. Please let us know if these explanations and examples have helped you, Angel. What question do you have about American English? Send us an email at learningenglish at voanews.com. And that's Ask a Teacher. I'm Faith Perlow. You just heard Faith Perlow present this week's Ask a Teacher. Hi, Faith. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me back. This week, you had a teacher write in about how they could improve their reading skills and help their students. This isn't a typical question that we get, so it was a nice change. We talked about how we can look for transitions within the text. We also looked at identifying definitions to help learn new words. Are there other ways we can learn new words? Yes. We can create new words by learning parts of speech, specifically changing parts of speech. So if we know a word and say it's a verb, we can try to change it to a noun or an adjective by adding suffixes. So if we know a verb like create, we can add different endings to the word to make other words. We can have creative or creation, which is a noun. Right. And from the adjective creative, we can make creativity or creatively the adverb. With just adding different endings to the base word, we've created five different words today. Pretty cool. Yes, this is the fun part of English, making words. If we combine this skill with the others, like finding out definitions and looking for transitions, we've got a lot of skills in our toolkit to help us with reading and writing. I think this will really help our listeners, Faith. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dan. I enjoyed creating words with you.
VOA Learning English has launched a new program for children. It is called Let's Learn English with Anna. The new course aims to teach children American English through asking and answering questions and experiencing fun situations. For more information, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. The Blue Hotel, Part Four. The Swede's face, fresh from Johnny's blows, felt more pleasure than pain in the wind and the whipping snow. A number of square shapes appeared before him. And he recognized them as the houses of the town. He traveled along a street until he found a saloon. He pushed open the door and entered. At the end of the room, four men sat drinking at a table. The Swede dropped his bag upon the floor, and smiling at the saloon keeper, said, "Give me some whiskey." Will you? The man placed a bottle, a whiskey glass, and a glass of ice-filled water upon a table. The Swede poured himself an extra large amount of whiskey and drank it down. Bad night, remarked the saloon keeper without interest. He was acting as though he were not noticing the man, but it could have been seen. That he was secretly studying the remains of blood on the Swede's face. Bad night, he said again. Oh, it's good enough for me," replied the Swede as he poured himself some more whiskey. No,、nope. continued the Swede. This isn't too bad weather. It's good enough for me. The large drinks of whiskey made the Swede's eyes watery, and he breathed. A little heavier. Well, I guess I'll take another drink," said the Swede after a while. "Would you like something?" "No, thanks. I'm not drinking." "How did you hurt your face?" The Swede immediately began to talk loudly. "Oh, in a fight. I beat the soul out of a man at Scully's Hotel." This caught the interest of the four men at the table. Who was it? Asked one. Johnny Scully, son of the man who owns the hotel. He will be nearly dead for some weeks, I can tell you. I beat him well, I did. He couldn't get up. They had to carry him into the house. Have a drink. Instantly, the men, in a quiet way, surrounded themselves in privacy. No thanks," said one. It was a strange group. Two were well-known local businessmen. One was a lawyer, and one was a gambler. But a close look at the group would not have enabled an observer to pick the gambler from the other men. He was, in fact, so delicate in manner and so careful with whom he gambled. 
that the men of the town completely trusted and admired him. His business was regarded with fear and lack of respect. That is why, without doubt, his quiet dignity shone brightly above the quiet dignity of men who might be merely hat makers or builders or salesmen. Beyond an occasional unwise traveler who came by rail, this gambler supposedly cheated only careless farmers who, when rich with good crops, drove into town full of foolish pride. Hearing at times of such a farmer, the important men of Romper usually laughed at his losses. And if they thought of the gambler at all, it was with a kind of pride of knowing he would never dare to attack their wisdom and courage. Besides, it was known that this gambler had a wife and two children in a nice little house where he led a perfect home life. And when anyone even suggested that there was a fault in his character, the men immediately described the virtues of his family life. And one must not forget to declare the bare fact of his entire position in Romper. It is true that in all affairs other than his business, this card player was so generous, so fair, so good, that he could be considered to have a higher moral sense than nine-tenths of the citizens of Romper. And so it happened that he was seated in this saloon with two local businessmen and the lawyer. The Swede continued to drink whiskey and to try to make the saloon keeper drink with him. Come on. Have a drink. Come on. No? Well, have a little one then. By God, I've beaten a man tonight. And I beat him good, too. Gentlemen the Swede cried to the men at the table. Have a drink? Shh, quiet, said the saloon keeper. The group at the table, although really interested, had been trying to appear busy and talk. But now a man lifted his eyes towards the Swede and said shortly, Thanks. We don't want any more. At this reply, the Swede straightened. Well, he shouted, it seems I can't get anybody to drink with me. I want someone to drink with me now. Now! Do you understand? He struck the table with his hand. Years of experience had hardened the saloon keeper. He merely answered, I hear you. Well, cried the Swede, listen then. See those men over there? Well, they're going to drink with me, and don't you forget it. Now you watch. Stop that, shouted the saloon keeper. Why should I? demanded the Swede. He walked to the men's table and by chance laid his hand on the shoulder of the gambler. What about it? he asked angrily. I asked you to drink with me. The gambler simply turned his head and spoke over his shoulder. My friend, I don't know you. Never mind, answered the Swede. Come and have a drink. 
Now, my boy, advised the gambler kindly, take your hand off my shoulder and go away. He was a little, thin man, and it seemed strange to hear him use this tone to the big Swede. The other men at the table said nothing. What? You won't drink with me, you little fool. I'll make you then. I'll make you. The Swede had grasped the gambler fiercely at the throat and was dragging him from his chair. The other men jumped up. The saloon keeper ran toward the table. There was a great scene of shouts and movements, and then a long knife appeared in the hand of the gambler. It shot forward, and a human body was cut as easily as if it had been a piece of fruit. The Swede fell with a cry of greatest surprise. <gasps> the businessman and the lawyer must have rushed out of the place backward. The saloon keeper found himself hanging weakly to the arm of a chair and gazing into the eyes of a murderer. Henry, said the latter, you tell them where to find me. I'll be home waiting. Then he left. A moment afterward, the saloon keeper was in the street, racing through the storm for help and more important, companionship. Months later, the cowboy was cooking meat on the stove of a small cattle farm near the Dakota border when there was the sound of a horse stopping outside. The Easterner entered with mail and newspapers. Well, said the Easterner at once, the fellow who killed the Swede will spend three years in prison. That's not much, is it? He will? Three years? The cowboy turned the meat in the pan. Three years. That isn't much. No, replied the Easterner. There was a lot of sympathy for him in Romper. If the saloon keeper had been any good, said the cowboy thoughtfully, he would have gone in and hit that Swede on the head with a bottle in the beginning of it. That would have stopped all this murdering. Yes, a thousand things might have happened, said the Easterner sharply. The cowboy moved his pan of meat on the fire, continued with his philosophy. It's strange, isn't it? If he hadn't said Johnny was cheating, he'd be alive this minute. He was an awful fool. I believe he was crazy. I feel sorry for that gambler, said the Easterner. So do I, said the cowboy. He doesn't deserve three years in prison for killing that fellow. The Swede might not have been killed if everything had been honest. Might not have been killed, exclaimed the cowboy. Everything honest? When he said that Johnny was cheating and acted so crazy, and then in the saloon he practically asked to get hurt? With these arguments, the cowboy made the Easterner angry. You're a fool, cried the Easterner fiercely. You're a bigger fool than that Swede. Now let me tell you one thing. Let me tell you one thing. Listen. Johnny was cheating. Johnny, said the cowboy blankly. 
There was a minute of silence, and then he said strongly, Oh, no. The game was only for fun. Fun or not, said the Easterner. Johnny was cheating. I saw him. I know it. I saw him. And I refused to stand up and be a man. I let the Swede fight alone, and you... You were simply jumping around the place and wanting to fight. And old Scully, too. We are all in it. This poor gambler just got pulled into it. Every sin is the result of shared effort. We, five of us, have shared in the murder of this Swede. You, I, Johnny, old Scully, and that fool of an unfortunate gambler came merely at the end of a human movement and gets all the punishment. The cowboy, hurt and angry, cried out blindly into this mystery of thought. Well, I didn't do anything, did I? And that's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak.